This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. And I'm Chris Kreitcho, and I'm really hoping that the thunderstorm I see out my window right now waits till after the episode to end, or it's going to be a really booming kind of episode. Oh, man. I would love to have a thunderstorm in the background of this episode. I'm Stephen Caradini, and today we're going to talk about everything right? We're going to talk about... I mean, that's what this podcast is. Yeah, but I mean, this book is about pretty much everything, and now we're going to talk about... <laughs> that's why I love it so much, Stephen. <laughs> relates to everything else. This is like the book of my winning slowly I know. soul. It, Technology and religion and ethics and art, it's all here. It, it really is. It's... it's Yeah, it's a thing. It's the there. Printing Press has an agent of change by Elizabeth Eisenstein. Yep. This is the winning slowliest book. And since it took 15 years to write this, I think she definitely gets a spot in the Hall she of Fame. She goes in the Hall of that's Fame. That's right. Oh, yeah. Also, she seems to have completely changed everybody's view of how print did or didn't impact print culture. So also, 15 years, and then you completely altered the trajectory of any field even adjacent to what you're talking about? Yeah, that Hall of Fame, for sure. So right up there with Ghost and Gravity Payments. That's right. Elizabeth Eisenstein, you're a hero. So the basics here are that we have this book, and how does it relate to the other books that we've read so far? The books we've read already are Plato's Phaedrus, Leotard's The Postmodern Condition, Kurzweil's The Age of Spiritual Machines, and Jurassic Park. Roar! I didn't have good sound effects for, for Phaedrus or The Postmodern Condition, but I figured if I could give you the sigh and the roar. That's because Phaedrus, it was just you staring up into space. <laughs> right. Pondering. Yes. And The Postmodern Condition is just laying down and being sad. <laughs> On the floor. <laughs> About Thomas Kincaid. About Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> One of the things that is a theme of Eisenstein's book is that there are effects of information that were changed as a result of the printing press. And she lists them out. They are dissemination, so literally distributing books and printed material, standardization, which is, as we discussed in the last episode, making almost perfect copies. Reorganization, making indexes and organizing information. Data collection, which is being able to, as a result of print, then go do other things and build on the work of print. Preservation, which is to a greater or lesser extent expecting print to last a long time or last a short time. Jefferson famously said we should just print things over and over again because they're going to fall apart and the way that we preserve them is by putting as many possible copies out into the world. Amplification and reinforcement, which is the delivery of ideas and the amplifying of ideas that are already there, reinforcing them. Cultural effects and the development of this new thing called the Republic of Letters which is sort of a specific historical event. And to some extent, we can talk about how blogs are like that, but they're pretty much not like that. Given how thorough that outline is and how really masterfully it covers the whole spectrum of kinds of changes that the printing press wrought, we thought it might be interesting to look not at the printing press. For that, I think, honestly, we would just say, go go read Eisenstein. She She's got this. Yep. But rather to apply that same outline and ask how is it similar and how is it different when we look at the internet today and the quote unquote digital revolution. And she actually at one point in the book calls out that even this upcoming digital revolution for her upcoming, she was publishing in the early 70s, 
is something that builds on print, and we we totally grant that. But this exercise, I think, may be illuminating in highlighting the degrees to which the digital world is altering the conditions which did exist in relatively stable ways for many centuries. Yeah. So we're just going to walk through this outline and talk about each of these and see, is this a case where the internet magnifies existing effects, undercuts existing effects? And Mm -hmm. if so, how do we think those may play out? Because as she noted about printing, in many cases, even the scenarios where it was, quote, just, unquote, magnifying an existing trend, that magnification can ultimately produce changes in kind. Kind, yeah. So dissemination is a really interesting place to start because mm-hmm. the sort of given knowledge is that the internet disseminates everywhere instantaneously, right. which to the extent that the internet has penetrated half of the world's population at this point, to some extent, maybe five eighths, mm-hmm. that's true. But print was potentially slower in getting there, but has had far wider effects up to this point in that right. I think it would be an understatement to say that only five-eighths of the world has been influenced by print, personally. <laughs> right. Or has had access to. Right. Many more people still have access to print than have access to the internet. Right. And you could argue that people who don't have direct access to the internet have been shaped by conditions above them by people who do have the internet. So you could argue that almost every person save for localized and strictly bounded cultures. Right. Indigenous cultures largely are entirely out of contact with right. other Which cultures. Those still exist, intriguingly. They didn't have the print revolution there either much. So given that, how much do you think that's true? How much has the internet exaggerated dissemination? Or because of the massive amount of information flow, has it actually decreased the effectiveness of dissemination? Yeah. I think we'll circle back to this when we talk about amplification, because I think these... Actually, I'm inclined to pull amplification forward right now, because I think what actually has happened is primarily amplification, and that people mistake that for dissemination. That because it's easier for one person to get potentially effectively global access, if you make a really hot meme, it can go around all the world's social networks Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. get access everywhere. If you write a really hot tweet or even even today still sometimes, yes, a really hot blog post or a really widely read essay or something, that can have an amplification effect that was much harder to come by for many individuals. And I think people mistake that for dissemination. I think Mm. people think that because it's easier for that amplifying to happen for you or me, that it is therefore the case that we're reaching more people via Mm. the internet, when in reality, the internet hasn't meaningfully changed the possible boundaries of dissemination. In fact, as as we noted, it's limited still in those ways. But these two things overlap. Like, how do you actually differentiate yeah. between my ability to disseminate and the amplification of individual voices? They're not, they're not cleanly separable here. Yeah, I think that's one of the distinctions that the internet is different from the, the printing press is that it collapses dissemination and amplification in that pretty much anyone can get a free WordPress, Right. all you need is an email address. It doesn't cost you any money. They will never charge you if you just use the .wordpress function. So pretty much anyone that has an email address, which is pretty much a necessary thing to operate on the internet, 
So pretty much if you have an email address, you have the ability to disseminate. That is different. Right. You don't have to find a publisher. I think insofar as you can separate dissemination and amplification, dissemination, the possibility of dissemination is immensely heightened. But I think that dissemination doesn't particularly matter without amplification on the internet. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why it collapses it. Because like the context, anybody can do this, doesn't really matter without the specific and someone will read it. Or, Or better, it actually, as you alluded to a minute ago, the fact that anybody can do it means that amplification becomes much more important. Because... No one's going to read most things that are published on the internet because there's just too yeah. much of it because the boundary for dissemination is essentially non-existent. Right. And there's an interesting way in that this reinforces books. It reinforces like, oh, this person must actually have something to say when everyone can publish. Yeah. This person is trusted by a real publisher and not just like, <laughs> right. you know, there's like, in an ironic way, it has reinforced the stratification of book publishers. I'm like, oh, Penguin, like, whoa, I think I need to read that. Right. Like, dang. Whereas if it's like, you know, a smaller press, I'm like, still good. I'll still read it. But like, it doesn't have the same thing of like, oh, Farrar, like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so the, in a weird way, it's stratified the, the always there stratifications of book publishers even further. So I think that dissemination is is greater in the raw terms, but it is less important. And I think that that points back to what Leotard was saying about the postmodern condition in that it's all word games at this point. Like Penguin doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> it does not mean that it's a good book. We've all read bad books by Penguin. This is no fault of yours, Penguin. <laughs> but like it has to do with significations of value in mm-hmm. a world where there's no like absolute marker of value. And I think that that is something that the printing press in general wrought, but that the internet has accelerated in that you sort of lose these cultural markers. I'm sure we'll get to that as we get to the Reformation with Eisenstein (laughs) is the like, you know, that's a sort of one big long dissociation of the authority of the Catholic Church. So I think it's hard to argue that dissemination isn't bigger than it used to be. But that amplification is therefore much, much, much more important. Maybe a, a helpful way of making a distinction about dissemination is to say that the possible number of people to which something can be disseminated is not larger. In fact, it's still at this point probably smaller. But the bar to being able to do the disseminating is much right. lower. And so more people can disseminate to an audience, there are two potential kinds of increases here, in other words. One of them might be the internet allows any piece of content to reach more people than the printing press did. That doesn't seem to be true. But the thing that does seem to be true is that anyone can have the effective dissemination, which was not the case with the printing press. And that, that distinction is an important one in that it changes both the amount produced, quantity, but it is also a change in kind because... I can put something out there that I might not have been able to put out there because it's lower quality, because it's less vetted, because it's more false. The rampant spread of conspiracy theories mediated by digital media, (laughs) they certainly had plenty of currency. I was listening to a podcast earlier today where James Lovell's son... In the cafeteria, while his dad was in the middle of Apollo 13, had a physics teacher of all people come up to him and say, oh, don't worry, it's all fake anyway. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> Conspiracy theories are very, very old, but there's a way in which dissemination of... Well, and Eisenstein even points out that, like, the, the advent of print resulted in an increase of books of magic, <laughs> which I thought was <laughs> super fun. Um, and also, like, wait, that's just a conspiracy theory. Come on now. So, yes. Yes. I think that's, that's definitely true. I think the one thing I would point out is that people can get accidentally amplified, right? Like, we've all heard of the person who's like, I just right. put this on my blog and now it's got like several million views and I had to turn off comments. What... What even happened? We covered this 3.01. Right. You can go listen to it. Basketballs are not equal to pumpkins. What even happened there? I think that to an extent that you had to try hard to get dissemination and try hard, therefore, to get amplification of that dissemination, I think now the bars to both, the, the, the raw bars to both are lowered, but the real bar... Like the actual lived experience of that is much higher, except for random events. And those kinds of random events are kinds of things that weren't possible yes. in the print era. Something could blow up in popularity, but you were constrained by the number of physical copies of a book to go yeah. around. Because the cost of reproduction, and I think this is a good segue into some of our later points, because the cost of reproduction on the internet is effectively zero, effectively. it's not actually zero, we're, we're paying for electricity and things like that, but it's effectively zero. That can happen to you. You can have a blog post that suddenly has 20 million views when your blog normally gets 200 yeah. hits a day. And it does happen. Yeah, so. it does. And so I think that points directly to standardization, which is mm -hmm. this concept that the veracity and fixity of a text are in some ways more mutable and in some ways more yep. immutable so the 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 old canard nothing is ever gone on the internet which is kind of true like the bad things that you want to leave the internet never will but all the fun and good things that you like will <laughs> they're gone they're i think that there's a, a definite sense in which the traditional ideas of standardization are scrambled greatly when you get to digitals. And much the same for preservation. I noted both of these as things which are subject to very different forces in a digital world than they were yeah. in the print world. Curiously, preservation of a digital text is actually much more difficult in the long run than preservation of a book. You just make enough copies of a book and put them in enough different places with an intent to keep them safe and you're good. Yeah. Bit rot is inevitable. Yeah. Enough electrons and neutrons and neutrinos flying around through space, flipping bits in your computer. Well, you'll lose documents. Eh, I mean, I, I think I think there's actually more similar than you're giving credit for, because like Jefferson said, like this book will fall apart. This pamphlet will disappear. If we just make a million copies of it, it never will. And so if you make a million copies of the document on the internet, it also will do the same thing. Right. But the, the key there is that because of how the internet works, because while that is possible, that's not how anything actually behaves in general. Your computer doesn't actually keep a copy in any permanent or meaningful way of the various web pages you've read. They exist effectively on one server someplace. Now, you have some browser history, you have a cache in your browser, you can choose to do it, and the Wayback Machine and the Internet Archive are actively trying to do this, which is part of why we give 10% of what we earn on this podcast to the Internet Archive every year. Which we still do, even though we don't announce it. But the Internet Archive has to do that because... 
your computer's not doing it. Yeah. My computer's not doing it. Effectively, there's a single point of failure for most pages on the internet. And if that goes offline, that content is probably gone. Not because that's an inherent aspect of digital media. You could have a, a world where things are automatically replicated yeah. and stored and preserved, but we don't. In practice, the choices we've made are that preservation is very difficult. It's not impossible, but it is very difficult. And I, I, I do admit that, but I also think that if you think about how books were thought about and how books were handled, I mean, definitely, I mean, manuscripts like you know, single point of failure to talk about the Library of Alexandria. Come on. No joke. So scripts, manuscripts, all those definitely are subject to almost the same sorts of digital rot. Like this thing's going to go, we've got to make a copy of it. And then that's a dangerous, (laughs) endangered copy as well. When you get to books, I mean, we do have rare book libraries. We do have ancient Mm -hmm. book libraries. Right. And good luck getting a copy of a piece of pulp fiction written in the late 1800s. Right. Like we have we They're have tons and tons of books that are gone. So everything has points of failure. I think that the the nature of web pages is exactly the type of thing you said. But I'm thinking more of like if you in my line of work have to go find a tweet, uh, a controversial deleted tweet, it's remarkably easy to do so because screenshots proliferate. People have taken screenshots. Yeah, and all you have to do is type like the name of the person or the organization that committed it plus right. the platform plus, you know, error or faux pas or controversy or whatever it ended up being and you'll get hundreds of hits. <laughs> now, are those all on one server somewhere? Potentially. There's the point of failure there. But like in terms of like information distribution, like I have my students write about deleted tweets every semester. How is this even possible? There are certain kinds of things that become more widely reproduced and therefore more stable. Right. And I think that was what Jefferson was getting at is that I know that half of these, three fourths of these, maybe all of these will disappear. But if we can just get one to survive, then we've done the job. But web pages are exactly and ever the the situation you um, you are in. For instance, I'm working on a, a piece about the history of the smart home with a historian friend mm-hmm. as a description of how um, technologies affect spaces. And we cited this really interesting piece from a blog. Um, we wrote it in... <laughs> probably wrote that section in October, maybe November. We've been revising it for publication, went back to check the link, get an image. It's May. It's gone. Blog's gone. It'd been there for years. It'd been the, the post was up in 2009, I think was when it was originally there. And then like <laughs> in the past six months, it was just, that yeah, was the time. It's gone. It's gone. Right. Maybe the person passed away. Maybe the they didn't want to and it was a dot WordPress, so it wasn't like it was a, a money issue. It was, you know, maybe this person didn't want to do this thing anymore, just eliminated it. I don't know. And even on the end of someone who cares about these things and wants to avoid them, I've considered this for my own website. Yeah. How would I go about guaranteeing the preservation of the content for whoever might be interested in the event of my death? I have no way to guarantee that. In fact, the best solution I've come up with, wait for it, is literally to print it. <laughs> 
<laughs> literally to create print <laughs> copies of my site. Chris and I have talked about this before to make a book of the web to save the web. Partially yeah. in jest and partially not in jest. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think it would actually be really cool if my bookshelf behind me here had chriscratcher.com 2007, 2008, yeah. 2009, 2010, all the way on through. Chris is not big on photo books, but he would print the internet for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I think those are some of the most interesting points of difference, though, between and divergence with the internet and digital media and print. Because while it was certainly true that print was subject to rot, it didn't have the same forms and the same vulnerabilities because you had multiple copies that were physically distributed in a way that you don't for digital media. The other thing I wanted to call out around preservation specifically is that there are really interesting dynamics in play where things can be edited much more speedily and much more pervasively than they could in the print era. Right. (laughs) Twitter cannot. You can just delete it and hope that no one screenshotted it fast enough. But if you're writing a blog, you can edit it. You can change what it says. Mm -hmm. And if somebody doesn't have a screenshot and they try to link and say, look what this jerk says about thus and such, you can just say it doesn't say that. What are you talking about? If you hold up a physical copy of a book with the words in it, it's really hard to argue with. Or you can put... It's hard to do that with a blog. You can put a footnote and be like, the original version said this. Well, that was dumb. I changed it. Right. I actually link people to the history of my posts because of the way my website is versioned. And I like the transparency and the honesty about that. And I'll footnote things like that. But you don't have to. You definitely don't. There's therefore a degradation relative to print there. Right. Where the fixity that we've come to associate with a given text, because once it's printed, it's printed. And if you want to issue errata, you have to print more stuff and try to get it to people. Which is an interesting cultural phenomenon as we shift into like how the culture has shifted, is that we don't really expect that anything is fixed in terms of online writing. Like, no. if, you th- if you think there's an error in how an article was reported in a newspaper era, you would, like, ask them to print a correction. In the digital era, you can be like, look, you misspelled my name, go fix it. And, like, if you're the Atlantic, you'll put a little note at the bottom that says, originally, this was misspelled. Right. But you don't have to. Like, and this just gets exponentially larger the the more and more you dislike the article, right? Like, if you think that the article is terrible, if you think it's abusive <laughs> or wrong or incorrect or, like, whatever, if you think that, you can try to get that article taken down. Like, you can try to do that if you want to. Right. That's a thing that's culturally possible. Now, as we've just said, like the whole process of getting it taken down, and then once it's taken down, it will be a deleted article that we write articles about. And so that's <laughs> weird. But like the process of doing that is something that, like, you know, in, in days of yore, you could try to get books removed from libraries and things like this, right. but it didn't work the same way, right? Like it didn't have the same expectation of possibility. And that, I think that shift is one of the ones that will continue to have large ripple effects over time. I think so too. Particularly because to some extent, it is what Leotard was saying about the information economy, which is that we always have been arguing information. (laughs) We just didn't know it. And now the arguing about information is becoming more transparent. And so I think that the, the nature of thinking about how information works will become more explicit, not less, Mm -hmm. and that 
people used to just complain about the newspaper. <laughs> they would send in a letter, and if the newspaper was so gracious, they would print an right. argument about the newspaper, right? right? Like, we didn't really have a, a sense of the what was possible, with, with exceptions. There are exceptions in the civil rights era and mm-hmm. in resistance movements and throughout the world and things like this. So there are exceptions to those moments. But in general, there's not a sense that, like, this information is mutable. It is part of history once it's there. Right. And that's gone. It's sort of gone because it is always still part of history, but we get to modify the history. It is no longer reliable is probably the better way to say it. It is no longer fixed is what I would say. To touch briefly on reorganization and data collection, I think these two are things that are certainly impacted by the advent of digital media. You can ask Stephen what his day job looks like right now. <laughs> I was about to say, this is all I do all day for all summer. So what I'm literally going to do once I'm done recording this. <laughs> Both of these seem to me to be, at least so far, primarily in the magnification of existing effects rather than wholesale changes in nature. Though again, as we noted, they can add up to, and I would argue that especially in the case of data collection around yeah. big data collections and things like that, or ease of access. Yeah, I would actually disagree with you. The concept of big data is a tectonic shift in the way we think about lots of different things. And we've talked a lot of different mm-hmm. episodes about how the effects of big data have shaped the ways that we think about policing and the way we think about the internet itself and the way we think about personal habits. And so I would actually say that the cultural expectation of big data, of this ability to collect whether it is personal collection or governmental collection or private collection, has changed what we think is possible. Mm-hmm. Like the concept of you know self-quantification and the possibility of change via numbers as opposed to change via character. The whole concept of Facebook is not even possible <laughs> without the idea of big data, right? Like not even saying their collection methods, but like the whole concept of like, what if I could find anyone that I ever knew? Like that's not a thing you could even imagine before. Uh, see, that's that's where I would differ. I would say... Well, maybe you can imagine it, but there's no frame. There's no frame for actually achieving there's, it. There's no ease for it. Oh, I don't even know if there's an ease. I don't think you could do it. I mean, in principle, you could. If you wanted to go through your list of all your contacts and your Rolodex and call them and see until you found the person who had their number, who had their number, who had their number, and dig on down through. And potentially someone fell off the face of that list, but there are some people not on Facebook. And Yeah. I, I suppose I suppose if you frame it that way, then yes, you could eventually get everyone you ever knew on the telephone if right. you tried hard enough. Or get their mailing address or what have you. And that actually is what I meant. Sounds like a year of living biblically book. <laughs> right. A year of working through my Rolodex. I think, though, that what you're getting at is entirely true, but is a function of a magnification of an existing effect in those ways. This is a case of something ultimately ending up being a novel in kind Mm. because of a dramatic increase in quantity. I think that's true. The initial shift with Facebook, for example, wasn't that different from what you might have had in your college anyway, depending on the college you went to. Literally, the name was a reference to things that actually existed in print. the phone book. Yeah. No, it's true. But the shift in magnitude resulted in a shift in kind. And that's a case where I think there is a a very strong analogy to the kinds of changes that Eisenstein calls out about print. There's a lot of continuity here, but the discontinuity in magnitude overwhelms the continuity in kind. Yeah. And 
and I, but I think that the continuity in kind or the discontinuity in kind is what allows things like, uh, facial recognition technology (laughs) yes right like there is no real frame for what facial recognition technology even means or can do in a world that isn't big data correct now the the irony that it like it's basically phrenology reinvented (laughs) is not lost on me like humans still want the same things but the ways that they go about it the sort of method and the sort of expectation of what will happen is different mm-hmm. and so i think that again like i just said humans still want the same things they want control order harmony and those all things compete so it's not like you can have them all and so we invented technology to try to harmonize them and it doesn't really work that way so true story you know so it's it's not a Kurzweilian techno utopia, right? Like it's not actually moving in that direction. It's it's more, as she points out in the book, it's more dispersed and sort of contradictory because local conditions are different than national and international conditions, right? Like as we've talked about with the EU versus the US in terms of how they think about things. I think reorganization, you just like yell the word Google and then you're done. And hyperlinking also. Yeah, we should do a whole different episode on hyperlinking we should i don't it mm. it is a radical shift in how organization connects but it's yeah, a deep but deep it's well, not used and it's not used it's, the way that it could be it's and, not yeah, used the way that it should be and it could be and yes different episode we'll come back to that one at some point listeners yeah we'll find a book about hyperlinks <laughs> they exist they do before we wrap though there are a couple more notes we should talk about namely reinforcement yeah cultural effects and republic of letters i think i want to start by saying there's nothing quite like the republic of letters no the republic of letters the literal historical version that is being mentioned here for those of you who are not familiar is literally a network of people mailing each other who were very elite in terms of education and in terms of being able to either physically go and meet people once or twice so that they could then have a correspondence with them or who are passed on by other letter writers to each other. These are people who were talking about often science, but other things as well. And they were literally physically writing letters to right. each other. And because they were weird, they many of them saved all of them, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But was awesome. But was awesome. <laughs> Few other people at this time were doing that sort of thing, mailing each other, and fewer of those were like saving them all. And there's just no real analogy to that today, because even in the form of a newsletter, which is kind of the closest analog you might think of, they're broadcast mediums rather than direct connection mediums. You might think about people emailing each other, but those dynamics are really different and people are... Well, some people are digital pack rats and still have all of them. But to our previous point, unless someone prints them when they die, goodbye. Well, I mean, Google will keep your Gmails forever. Don't worry. But it's it's an interesting phenomenon that like when it was happening, the only people who knew it was happening were people who were in it. And like we found out about it later. So arguably it could be happening today and we just find out about in a hundred years. I think that's true. Is that like we will find correspondence between famous people in emails and in bits of stuff and archives and things like this. I mean, there are people that are as digitally obsessive as like <laughs> Clark was with his Clark Ives, right? Like it's true. There are people who are like that. But it it is obscured and always and ever obscured. And so it could be happening. But we don't know. 
I think it probably is to some extent. And then the cultural effects, we did like seven seasons on that. Yeah, I was going to say, this. Have, <laughs> have you listened to this podcast? And much the same, honestly, is true yeah. of reinforcement. Yeah. We've talked in detail and depth about the way that reinforcement does and doesn't work the way that it's often portrayed as working. Yeah. Both the extent to which filter bubbles are and aren't real and the way that they do and don't interact the way people often talk about on social media. So we will just refer yeah. you to seasons zero through seven of this podcast for yeah. that. Yeah, I will say one thing about reinforcement, which is that Facebook realized a couple years ago that the newsfeed was getting toxic and they tried to shunt people into groups and they were like, this won't be that bad. To some extent, what they wanted to do was take people out of the experience of seeing people who are violently opposed to their opinions. To some extent, they have done that, much greater extent than Twitter. But to a worse and much greater effect, they created reinforcement problems within their Facebook groups. And this has been an increasingly large problem over the past couple of years, and I've become increasingly concerned with it. And this is a specific function of reinforcement over a large group of people yeah. who have had no prior contact with each other other than weird ideas that they got from somewhere else. And that is a type of reinforcement that we haven't talked much about, mm -hmm. um, especially recently since it became a serious problem. That is very different. It is. Then no, no analogs in print or preprint cultures. There's nothing quite like it. Yeah. I mean, Passing books does not even approximate the strange reinforcement problems that Facebook has created with Facebook groups. We'll also return to that at some point in the future. Some of these things may end up in bonus episodes or other, yeah. other media like that. Yep. Hyperlinks and Facebook groups. There you are. So the music at the beginning of the episode was drawn by Trevor Ransom. We used it with permission. Thank you for letting us use it. If you'd like to sponsor the show and get early access to those bonus episodes, if or when we post them, mm -hmm. you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. If you'd like to talk to us about all the many things we talked about as quickly as we could cover in this already kind of long episode, <laughs> but there's so much to yeah. say. So much to you say. You can email us at hello at winningslowly.org. Stephen will answer. I will read. Maybe someday I'll actually answer one of those emails. It'll be a good day. You can yeah. message us on Facebook or Twitter. Stephen will also read those and answer them. I probably won't yep. even read those. So email really is your best <laughs> bet. And uh, thanks again to all of our listeners and supporters. It's uh, just an honor to have your listening ears, particularly in this time where yes. most people aren't listening to as many podcasts because most people aren't commuting as much. So true that. thank you so much for giving us your time. We appreciate it. Try to make it worth your while. Until next time, when we're talking about Simone Brown's Dark Matters, thanks for listening. <laughs>